Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Book Pod with Corey Perkins. The fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. everyone and welcome to The Book Pod, our fortnightly podcast that brings writers and readers together. Today, The Book Pod welcomes Sydney journalist, filmmaker and author Andrew L. Irvin to the microphone. Andrew and his colleague Chris McLeod have written a terrific book about Ukraine leader Vladimir Zelensky and his country's turbulent history with neighbouring Russia. In February this year, Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to invade Ukraine and suddenly Zelensky described these days as Churchill in a T-shirt, became the world's most talked about leader. The book Zelensky, the unlikely Ukrainian hero who defied Putin and united the world by Andrew and Chris McLeod uh, arrived in bookshops in May. It was a quick turnaround for Andrew and Chris and indeed Wilkinson Publishing, the publishing house that commissioned the book. Hats off to all involved for providing a much needed resource on a contemporary war and its historical foundations. What was this invasion all about and how did Vladimir Zelensky find himself in the most unenviable of roles at this extraordinary moment in history? Welcome to the book pod, Andrew. After many years of reading your journalism work, it's great to finally meet. Indeed, Cory, great to to be here. How did the book project come about and how much time were you given by Michael Wilkinson, the publisher? It must have been the most fierce of deadlines. <laughs> well, I'm not worried about deadlines, as you know, journalists live on them. Um, it actually began with a, a request from Michael's American publishing partner, Zegnery Publishing, who uh, approached him and said, look, we would like to be out first with the, Zelen- the first Zelensky book. We want to be first. Do you have any writers that could do it? Um, and Michael rang me and uh, asked if I'd be interested in in doing a book on Zelensky uh, one Saturday morning, about 10 days after the invasion began. And I said, oh, you mean Zelensky, the hottest topic in the world today? Would I be interested in doing a book? Yes. <laughs> so, so I hung up and opened a document called Zelensky. <laughs> so there was no deadline set, but they wanted to be first, which meant we had to be quick. Michael also invited Chris McLeod, who is Melbourne-based, 
to help with the research because Chris is great at that. He's a former journalist, editor, you know, great talent. And we worked seamlessly together almost without even comparing notes. It was amazing. And it, it is a war that you could, we, we felt that we were embedded in this war because you could follow it uh, on social media, newspapers, on television, everywhere. You know, it, it was very much a transparent war, at least in the, in the execution of it. And it, it did strike us, I, I did feel, you know, at first that it was a bit strange that here in Australia, we were writing about a war uh, taking place on the other side of the world. But, but after a while, it became kind of, we forgot that because it, if, if, even if I were in my hometown in Budapest, you know, it would be the same as if I was here in terms of access. And so we really got stuck into it and uh, we, we delivered the manuscript if I remember rightly, uh, about within a month or thereabouts. Wow, that's pretty, that's full time writing, I would imagine. It's, yeah, it's it's not a big book, but looking at it, is it what about uh, thirty thousand, forty thousand words? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great, great, fantastic effort. I wonder, Andrew, whether lockdowns and the pandemic of the past couple of years has changed the way we communicate, but also the way. I guess sometimes I feel that we've become more more one community. The, the global community has become a one community. We can now jump on Zoom and have a meeting with somebody on the other side of the world. We can now so easily, because we've had to do it, access library files and, and newspaper articles. And people have just become much more comfortable with moving around the planet, really, haven't we? Yes, and, and for, you know, for investigative journalists, the research is much easier to conduct quickly now if it's available on the internet we'll find it within a few minutes at most so yeah in that sense also there is a there's a change in the dynamic of investigation for journalistic purposes and that's i think you're right i think that was driven to a large extent by the lockdowns and the necessity becoming the mother of invention so your book is pretty straightforward there's not a lot of editorialising or opinion in there about what this man is like because obviously as, a, as a, a figure for biography, it's difficult because you haven't met him. So you've really based it on sort of secondary, a lot of secondary evidence and so on. But, but he really does come to life in your book and there were so many aspects of Vladimir Zelensky's life and his personality of which I was unaware which is interesting because, as you said, it's been such a well-covered 21st century modern war with, at its heart, a leader who used to be an actor who's very au fait with, with, with digital media and social media formats that he has almost become a character in his own war. What was it that you were trying to tell the reader that perhaps we didn't know? Well, he wasn't that well known. I mean, apart from the fact that he was on television for years, but as a comic, as a, as a comic actor. So I think he was best known for a conversation he had with President Trump, which was quite controversial, but that didn't really say much about him. In fact, there is a, there's some footage of him sitting at a table with Putin way back, you know, before, before the invasion which is one of the most interesting little clips that I've seen because there is a really green new president of Ukraine who has basically not stumbled, but he, he found the presidency against all the odds. And there was Putin 
you know, the shark sitting virtually next to him. And that juxtaposition was terrific. The body language was great to watch. But, but the thing I wanted to do really more than anything is to put him in context of what was going on. Because the hardest thing, I think, for everyday people, for people who are not involved in politics or journalism, is to get a sense of the leaders involved. I mean, you know, everybody else, all the other leaders are very well known. They're always in the news. They've been around for a long time. They've been seen as politicians. But Zelensky has not. And so I basically chose things that gave us a perspective on, you know, what was his background? You know, he was born in, in Ukraine's equivalent of Broken Hill. He was a small kid. He was threatened, you know, with bullying and he needed friends around him. And his mother was an engineer. His father is still a, 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 an academic. He, he's a, at uni. He leads a department. And, you know, there was, there was nothing of that about him in the public domain. Well, there was, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't sort of re reported freely. And, you know, you, you mentioned somebody had labeled him Churchill in a T-shirt because he was wearing a, a sort of khaki t-shirt every time he appeared and his his rhetoric was reminiscent of the wartime leader who rallied his people by his eloquence and to that to that extent you know he kind of qualifies my favorite quote that i came across was when he was running for president somebody said to him but you know you've got no experience as a politician and he said well you don't need experience to be a politician you just need to be a decent person which I really liked, and I wish some other politicians would take that on board. So I, I wanted to get a sense of how he came to the role and how he was managing the role, which everybody saw his, not everybody saw it, but a lot, you know, we watched all his, all his speeches to the parliaments, Europe, European Parliament, British Parliament, the American Congress, the Australian Parliament, and so on. And they are reproduced uh, in the book. Part of the title of the book, Andrew, is The Unlikely Ukrainian Hero Who Defied Putin. And why, in your view, is he an unlikely hero? Precisely because of his background. It is fairly unusual for an actor to step straight out of his professional role as a comedic actor straight into the presidency of his country with very little. He had no uh, political background. Uh, but it was it was indicative of him and his character that he used the name of his TV show, Servant of the People, as the name of his party. So he kind of fused his his acting uh, and his presidency. And of course, it's important in that context to remember that what happened on the show, it was a satirical comedy series, and what got him really noticed in a political context was his very first show, he, was, he played a teacher, and he delivers this short but really passionate rant to one of his colleagues about corruption in politics. And that, it hit such a nerve because that was actually the, you know, that's the reality in Ukraine. And it kind of, it was almost like a rehearsal for his presidential run. And it's, it's, it's good to know that. You know, as you're talking about him, of course, I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan, who probably would be, the trajectory would be the most similar to the one that Zelensky yes. had. Yet, yet, of course, as we know, Ronald Reagan had all those years as governor in California to hone, exactly. hone yeah. his skills. And also, 
if you listen to Republican historians, Ronald Reagan was very good. He was a good administrator because he was a, an exceptional, he had an exceptional eye for talent and he put mm. very, good, very good people in positions yes. below him. So he looked good. Yeah. I wonder what your assessment is of Vladimir Zelensky's administrative skills. It's all very well being a charismatic leader who can deliver a great speech, but what about the way he approached issues facing his country before this invasion, such as an, a potential recession and an economic crisis, and, and then how he's brought skills, what skills are there he, that he's brought to the fore in running this war? Look, I didn't go into that very deeply. I mean, we just didn't have time and wasn't really the, the book for that. But what we could surmise was that he had a, once, it's, once the invasion started and he showed his mettle, as it were, a lot of the opposition to him melted away and coalesced around him. And I would imagine, and I'm, I'm just assuming this, that he had a very good team around him who managed that because they managed to keep him away from the Wagner group who were set out to assassinate him. So he, he had a, a fairly good motivation to, to be well protected. But it also shows that there was, you know, I was talking yesterday to Pete Schmigel, who had just come back from three months in Ukraine, and he was saying how fascinating it was that, you know, what you would expect from this distance now, you would expect Ukraine to be plastered with posters of Zelensky. There's not one. It's not a personality cult. You know, he's, he, it's not him doing everything. He's highly revered, but he's doing his job as far as they're concerned. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't answer your question fully because I don't know the answer fully. Yeah, well, maybe that's book two. I'm sure there's another book in this. Do you feel yes. that? <laughs> Probably. Three. So one of the things I most uh, enjoyed or found so fascinating about the book, Andrew, is that you, you delve into a bit of the history of Russia's relationship with Ukraine, which over centuries has been fraught and difficult at times. Yes. And particularly the focus of 20th century and, and the Second World War and then post-World War. We, we often refer to, or Ukraine is referred to as the food bowl of Europe. What is the motivation, in your words, for, for Putin wanting to reclaim this land at such a high possible personal cost? Assuming, assuming he hasn't killed everybody who is against him, of course. It's, it boils down to, I mean, there are several arms to that, the, the, several sub-branches of answers, but the crucial, central, most motivating aspect is Putin's imperialist aspirations, oddly enough. He's harking back to the Tsar era when Russia was an empire and he wants to reclaim empire one way or the other. He said that, he said that in, in, in either directly and indirectly. And that's pretty scary because it's not a madman acting in pursuit of a fantasy. It's a very determined and well-resourced leader whose who's authoritative reign means he can do what he likes, basically. So it's a very, very dangerous combination. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Your book made me think a lot about power, Andrew, and the, the juxtaposition of Putin and Zelensky. 
And what is it that, that is driving Zelensky? What, what was it that drove him, first of all, to put his hand up and say, look, I'm going to stand for parliament? There seems to be a different ambition in the two men. Oh, total opposites. Yeah. yeah. They're total opposites in every way, personally and politically, as characters and as leaders. Uh, Zelensky really, I mean, you could tell from his speeches, he's really a, a patriotic Ukrainian. Uh, he loves Ukraine. He wants Ukraine to be a sovereign, protective nation facing West. And he doesn't, he was never comfortable with the level of corruption in politics. So while you, you could say, oh, well, that's a very romanticized, you know, glorified view of him. But in fact, it's much simpler than that. I know because, you know, I, I have an empathy with Ukrainians having escaped from Russian tanks in 1956 from, in Hungary. And that patriotism makes, makes this an uneven war, uneven in the sense that Ukraine has far more motivation than the Russian soldiers. I'm interested in that personal experience because I would imagine that's, that not only drew, drew you to this subject matter and this slightly horrendous deadline, which, of course, you met with, with bells on, but it's also given you an empathy for what the mm. Ukraine people are going through. Tell us about your experience and your looking back on that time in your life, the impact it had. Yeah, huge impact because, you know, in uh, growing up in a, in a communist-controlled country, you become politicised quite early, especially as my family was, was not in the favourite books of the regime. And so by the time the revolution had been crushed by Russian tanks, at the invitation of the reinstalled puppet Russian Russian puppet government, it was not a replica, but a, a very similar situation to Ukraine. The fact that I went through that experience makes me very empathetic and sympathetic to a people who are facing a brutal enemy and are not entirely, but greatly propelled and motivated by their sense of patriotism and and desire for personal freedom. And I must tell you, you mentioned that in the book, we don't, uh, there's not much editorializing. There's in fact only one thing that we editorialize about, and that is the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, in which the US and the UK agreed to protect Ukraine in return for Ukraine giving up its nuclear arsenal as part of the non-proliferation treaty. And it has six articles, and the first two are absolutely critical. They agreed to respect the independence and sovereignty in the existing borders of Ukraine. Not tick refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine, not ticked. And the fact that the Russian Federation trampled all over this and the US and UK did nothing, basically legitimized the Putin's invasion. And I think that is horrific. And that's another thing that I feel very sympathetic to because in 1956 in Hungary, we were kind of half expecting somebody from the West to come and help us because they'd been talking about the Russian threat, the Soviet, as you say, Soviet threat, but, but we didn't get any material help, just a lot of talk, which is exactly what Zelensky said, you know, talk a lot, but you're not doing anything. You know? His communication and straight to the point and, and taking it up to the world leaders and saying, 
exactly what he wanted in terms of arms and help and assistance and flyover yeah. zones and, and all yeah. of this sort of thing makes him such an interesting character, doesn't it? He's he he's a he's a fabulous communicator, Andrew. Mm. Yeah. Great performer. And I think he uh, he probably didn't realize at the beginning, he didn't realize what an impact that would have. But then when he saw it coming back in such big numbers and big big responses, he realized that was a real asset. That was a real weapon that he could use both as as supporting and encouraging and firing up his his country, but also as propaganda against Russia. Andrew, I wonder if you would do us the honour of reading a passage or two from yours and Chris's book. Yes, look, what I think I might like to do, if it's all right with you, is one of the first things I came across in my research, I, as we've just been talking about my experience, in uh, in Hungary in 1956, and when the tanks came in, the Russian tanks were invited in, and the 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 newly installed puppet government had taken back control of the radio, which is a crucial part of any uh, conflict, the communication channels, and and the Russian tanks were coming in, and they were shelling our freedom fighters, and the radio was trying to assure us, saying, look, don't worry. The, the, these are these are our friends. They are here to root out the troublemakers and the foreign instigators. They're our friends, and very quickly there was a what I call survivor humor response to that, and it was going around that you know, gee, you know, isn't it good they're our friends? Imagine what they'd be like if they were our enemies. So that was that was what guided me to this thing that I'm going to. <laughs> read to you, which is, <laughs> I came across very early in the second day, I think, of research. It is a story told. So the story is that Putin and his driver are on their way to Kiev in a car when all of a sudden they hit a pig near a farmhouse, killing it instantly. Putin tells his driver to go up to the farmhouse and explain to the owners what had happened. About an hour later, Putin sees his driver struggling back to the car with a bottle of Horilka, the Ukrainian vodka, in one hand, a cigar in the other, and his clothes all ripped and torn. Oh, what happened to you? asked Putin. Oh, well, the, <clears throat> the farmer gave me the Horilka. His wife gave me a box of cigars, and their 19 and 21-year-old daughters made mad, passionate love to me simultaneously. My God, what did you tell them? asks Putin. And the driver replies, I'm the President Putin's driver and I just killed the pig. <laughs> and and this is this is indicative of, of how people handle situations like that with, with black black humor. And you know, it's absolutely typical. If I went back now, there'd be thousands of these jokes. You you you're so right about the humor. And also the what's struck me in the in the coverage, particularly I guess my main source of news has been the ABC reporters who have done an incredible job. But the the grace of the Ukrainians and also their their strong sense of community, which mm. is not just a Zelensky phenomenon. And this is a country that's been invaded by this and that and over the centuries, yet they have this very strong sense of who they are. It's quite remarkable. It is, you know, um, just going back to a discussion I had yesterday with Peach Mingle, we were saying that when he, early on, you know, Zelensky was 
offered an opportunity to leave the country. And he's famously replied, I need tank, anti-tank ammo, not a ride. You know, he said that was the crucial decision that, in, that basically fired up the nation. If he had gone, Kiev would fall within days. And that was the stand that exemplifies what you're just saying about Ukrainians. You know, that was, that was his position. That's what all people are staying who don't have to stay and they're fighting. So I think we have a piece of history unfolding in front of us that's going to be quite dramatic. I was surprised. I knew that there had been threats on Vladimir Zelensky's life, but I was surprised in your book, Andrew, to realise that there had been so many assassination attempts thwarted. Yeah, the, the Wagner Group, which is a mercenary private army, it's got, I think, it's about 3,000 members now. It's shadowy and deadly dangerous, and they were one of the groups that went after Zelensky. Uh, luckily, they didn't succeed. And I think there were two other attempts, but I couldn't find all the details. And I think, the, it's, again, I'm surmising, but I think when those three attempts failed, I think Putin might have put out the word that, no, we don't want to do that because that would be disastrous in terms of world response. It would be disastrous for Russia if, if he was assassinated. You kind of keep wondering, the bejesus is being bombed out of most of the country. And yet the leader and his group in a sanctum have remained safe and touch wood, you know, will continue to. It's a very different kind of war that Vladimir Putin is facing, I suspect, to the one he thought six months ago he would be engaged with. It is. But I'm, I'm disappointed to learn from people on the ground in Moscow who are closely connected that the propaganda war, Putin's propaganda war, is succeeding. Something like 80% of, of Russians believe his version of events and are supporting the war, which is really, really unfortunate. And the most remarkable one, as you say in the book, is the, is the Nazism argument. Yes. Uh, and the fact that, that Zelensky himself is Jewish, the first Jewish president. It's just, it's, just, it's just weird. It's weird. Yeah, it is. Although, to be fair, or not so much to be fair, but to just put an asterisk on that, there are some there are some small Nazi elements in Ukraine. They're very. I mean, like I think the extreme right wing party got about three percent of the vote. That's kind of thing. It's there, but it's it's laughably small. So I guess, mind you, I guess that would be the same everywhere. There'd be you know this tiny percentage of crazes everywhere. So just back to your own writing and your own experiences and so on. Have you ever written a book quite like this? No, no, no. I mean, it was, it was a real wonderful challenge. I can imagine. And in what way? I mean, apart, apart from the obvious, which is you, you have no access to the subject of your book and you're on the other side of the world. And have you ever been to Ukraine? No, no. Okay. So, so you have to build a picture in your mind's eye. You had to create foundations, I guess, and building blocks from which to write with authority. What were those building blocks? How did you go about it? Well, I mean, there was the ephemeral connection that my Hungary shares a border with Ukraine. Uh, the closest I ever got to Ukraine was about 20 k's at a town that I visited. But notwithstanding the fact that I hadn't been there, that physical geographical proximity, and there's some cultural affinities, I guess, in a way. And as I say, there are, there are connections that I have, but nothing, nothing really firm, nothing really to grab onto. I had to make those as we went along. 
and it was it was like riding a bicycle i mean riding a motorbike alongside a train trying to keep up with events and and making notes as we go it was a wild ride what a wonderful thing to happen at at a point in your career when you've written about such diverse subject matter and after kind of decades of a, of a stellar career working in all sorts of other areas of journalism, you actually get to write about something that, given your experience in Budapest and I guess a lifetime of grieving for your homeland, you get to write a book like this. Yeah, you're dead right. It's served, uh, it met a lot of criteria for me as a journalist, combining real life and ultra real life. I thought that uh, it was the universe had picked me to write the book because of who I am and where I come from. I believe in that. I believe books find their authors. I really believe that. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed our chat so much. And as we always ask our guests on the book pod, is there a particular desert island book or author that you would be very happy to be marooned with on an island or maybe in the fields of Ukraine somewhere? <laughs> Among the wheat. Among the wheat. Um, look, yes. As a matter of fact, I've just started rereading a book by Robert Harris called Lustrum, set in 63 BC Rome. So I would like to have, I've read just about all of his books. I'd like to have his latest books delivered by helicopter or, or digitally on my desert island because I think I love history and I love his novelization of real history. In other words, you're reading a thriller, but it's all true. It's called novel. It's called a novel, but it's actually history. And it's history with blood and guts and flesh. And Lostrum is written in the voice of his of Cicero's slave, Tiro. And that gives it a really special, it's a special way into the, world of Rome 63 BC. And it's not the only book he's written. His uh, Imperator was the other one, which is the first one I read about Cicero. It's absolutely absorbing. I can't put them down. So I'm back because I read them years ago. I'm now rereading all the great books I read years ago. Well, dare I say that you didn't find parallels because history just repeats itself. So there would yes. be parallels, I'm sure, with Vladimir Putin and his <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Just finally, Andrew, what, what do you think, do you have a feeling or a sense of Zelensky beyond 2022, where we are right now with this war and with this man? Oh, look, we just talked about this again last night. It's impossible to tell because the thing that is now in play is what, politicians usually are most afraid of, which is events. As I think it was Macmillan who said, yes, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because the, it's unknowable. You see, one of the things that happened with this invasion as far as the West supporting Ukraine was that it started very slowly and tentatively. Uh, then it ratcheted up when it was seen that Ukraine was actually holding its own and doing quite well being a better army and more motivated and so forth, they weren't that well resourced. So then they started, the West started providing more and more weapons, but it never, it never should have got to that. And it is now a question of whether there'll be enough pressure on politicians to take the fight to the Russian army or whether they're just going to sit there and watch uh, the, the Russian tactic of pulverizing everything. So it's unknowable, but I think it's, I think it's within the next month or two, there'll be some indication of which way it's going to go. 
Well, I hope your man is, uh, is left standing at the end. Given his age, he's so young to be yeah. such, a, such a well-known and respected leader. I hope that he really stays on the world stage and continues to communicate to us with such dignity, Andrew. Yes. And I mean, let's face it, if, if things don't go well, he can always go back to being a president on television. <laughs> oh, Lord, I hope so. Wouldn't that be wonderful if life could return to normal? I mean, I, you know what? I reckon he and his missus have thought that a few times too over the past couple of months. Yes. I mean, he was, look, he's, he's still a politician, a, a comedian. When he didn't tell her that he was running for president. And then when she found out, she said, Why didn't you tell me? And he said, Well, I forgot. <laughs> which is exactly what a comedian would say. Well, she in her own right, she's been a fabulous leader. Yeah. Look, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you to, to you and to Chris and also the wonderful Ford written by Rebecca Koffler, your colleague who is a Putin specialist, which really kind of brings this, this knitted jumper all together. The book is Zelensky, the unlikely Ukrainian hero who defied Putin and united the world published by our friends at Wilkinson Publishing here in Melbourne. Andrew, congratulations on, on meeting that deadline and churning out this book. We look, look forward to the second volume. Thank you, Corrie. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs>